1: This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're discussing climate fiction in literature and film. During the Cold War, the specter of nuclear Armageddon was portrayed on screen in stories ranging from Dr. Strangelove to the 1983 TV mega-hit The Day After. Today, climate disruption is catching on in Hollywood. Recent movies portraying a world gone crazy on carbon include Snowpiercer and Interstellar. In literature, Barbara Kingsolver's 2012 novel Flight Behavior was set in a small town where monarch butterflies migrated north from Mexico in a warming world. And science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson has written several books featuring a trashed climate, most recently the novel 2312. Over the next hour, we will talk with Kim Stanley Robinson and journalist Jason Mark about climate fiction and climate reality. Along the way, we'll include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club meeting today in Lafayette. Author Kim Stanley Robinson is perhaps best known for his Mars trilogy. His climate-themed work includes Antarctica and 40 Signs of Rain. The New Yorker magazine called him the greatest living science fiction writer. Jason Mark is editor of the Earth Island Journal and recently penned a column on Cli-Fi published in the New York Times op-ed page. Please welcome them to Climate One. Mm. Welcome both. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, let's begin with you. you. Your story, you went to Antarctica, and uh, that was part of your kind of climate awakening. Tell us about your time down in Antarctica. It was about, what, 20 years ago?
0: Yes, it's almost exactly 20 years ago. Um, thanks, Greg. I was sent to Antarctica by the National Science Foundation that has an Antarctic program for artists and writers. And so after my Mars books, I applied, got accepted, and spent... Uh, two months down there that was November and uh, December of 1995. So I was a roving reporter and I followed the scientists around and spent a lot of time in their field camps and a lot of them were doing what they called climate change research because Antarctica is one of the poles. The poles are changing faster than anywhere else on Earth for reasons that aren't well understood and I would ask them, how fast could climate change affect us? And they would say, oh, really fast. And I'd say, well, how fast do you mean? And they'd say, well, two or 3,000 years. (laughs) And so um, that's fast for geologists, but it's slow for us. And I couldn't think of a story. And when I got back from Antarctica, I wrote a novel about Antarctica that only just began to discuss climate change, but... um, Sea level rise is implicated in that because the West Antarctic ice sheet uh, is unstable down there and could come off and sea level rise quite quickly. So that was one aspect of the story. And another one was when they uh, took the greenland Iceland cores uh, at the turn of the millennium, they got 800,000 years of really good atmospheric data year by year, and they found that there had been abrupt climate change, which the National Research Council put a report out on Uh, And what they meant was that the whole world had gone from a climate that was uh, warm and wet near the end of the last ice age to cold, dry, windy in three years. And they postulated that the stalling of the Gulf Stream had been the cause of this. And I thought, okay, three years is a story that I can tell. So that's why I wrote 40 Signs of Rain and got more and more interested in this Notion of uh, tipping points where although climate seems stable There are certain things that can happen that would rapidly change climate
1: and Jason mark uh, Tell us how you started to notice climate fiction or cli-fi as a a emerging genre in Film and literature
3: well again, so I you know, I, I cover the environment pretty broadly, which obviously includes climate and energy and I just as a as a moviegoer, as a novel reader, I just started to notice it popping up more and more. Not necessarily always as an explicit theme, though sometimes, but often as is, is a like a plot point. Something that would maybe like launch the novel, or launch the story, or launch the film. Um, and and I thought it was interesting that that it seemed that what either film directors or in some case novelists were doing. Was almost using it like background, and then and then staging their story on top of that. And that's in some ways more more interesting than you know a, a book about climate change. It's almost like it's in especially in books that, for lack of a better description, would be called science fiction. Um, especially in in science fiction books where there's there's sort of a, a you know a, a, a more ambitious imagining, say, of the future. In some of those books. Yeah, it seemed to me like it was just kind of background, and that was really interesting because it was almost like the, the future that we're foretelling for ourselves that we can so easily imagine for ourselves.
1: And one of the more recent ones was Interstellar, so let's let's talk about that, you know, that, the, the premise there. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, you, what did you think of, of, of Interstellar?
0: Well, I really disliked it. I thought it was a pretty dreadful movie um, in a lot of ways. Um, it, if you presented it as climate fiction then um, the world has a problem. It, the solution was magic. Uh, we can't go faster than light. We can't go through wormholes. And if, even if you granted that bit of magic, which already is uh, fantasy thinking, you would only be able to get a few people away from Earth and you'd be leaving Earth to go to a place that you know looked like Iceland because it was filmed in Iceland. So the plan A would never mm-hmm. work in that movie and the plan B wouldn't work either. So it was as if the filmmakers were saying, if, since this is a science fiction movie, we can be stupid and get away with it because it's just science fiction. And so I was offended by it because science fiction is actually a very intellectually powerful genre and it doesn't have a whole lot of patience for stupidity. So this is like a kind of 1930s power fantasy movie and we're well past that now. We're 80 years past that kind of thinking.
1: Jason Mark, you ended your New York Times piece by saying there is no planet to be. Uh, Interstellar is about escaping. Uh, some, people, some humans escape as eggs, fertilized eggs, I think, to the next planet. What did you think of Interstellar? I,
3: I guess I'm glad to hear Stan say this. Yeah, I mean, I, in some ways, I, I thought it was a kind of a horrible movie, not just because of the sort of magical realism around uh, the wormholes and, and traveling faster than light, but the way that... Um, the director, in, in some ways, kind of ham-handedly set up some of the phys- philosophical dilemmas. It wasn't it wasn't that um, uh, sophisticated, in think. But yes, my big my bigger point there that I wrote about in the Times was the this, the science fiction premise is not that Earth's going to be in big trouble. That was just the launching point for the film. the real The real thing that is implausible or that is in a way kind of politically undigestible is that some small fraction of us are going to launch off into the next planet. And, well, maybe maybe some lucky stranded few will. The 1%. The, or the, or the uh, you know, 0.001%. <laughs> but what about the 7 billion rest of us? Um, and in a way, this is kind of like the recurring theme of some of these movies. I thought Snowpiercer, in fact, did that kind of well because that movie, if anything, had this sort of more interesting class dimension, right, saying, well, the, the people in the front of the train are all going to party, and the proletariat in the back are going to be eating ground-up bugs um, in these protein bars. So, and that, so the director's kind of saying there is no escape. There's, you know, we're all on this, this kind of train rattling around together, and the people in the caboose at some point are going to say, enough. and and stage a rebellion, which is kind of what they do.
1: Let's talk about the premise for uh, Snowpiercer, because that was timely this week. It's been in the news. Uh, Would you like to, Jason, Mark, set that up in terms of geoengineering?
3: Sure. So I'm sorry for folks who haven't seen the film or who are listening who haven't seen the film. The the film launches um, with a botched geoengineering experiment. And so... Read your newspapers or, uh, you know, websites today. um, National Academy of Sciences put out a big report about geoengineering, which is also sometimes called atmospheric geoengineering. This is the idea that we could engage in large scale, planetary scale changes to the entire either atmosphere or the oceans to either A deflect sunlight back away from the, from the planet, which is called albedo manipulation. Right? We could spray sulfur particles into the stratosphere that will bounce sunlight away in the planetary version of pulling down the shades. Or perhaps we could dump tons of iron filings in the ocean. Plankton will gobble up all uh, the CO2. They'll die. They'll drop to the bottom of the seafloor, sequestering lots of carbon in the process. Snowpiercer, I thought, was kind of cool because it was the first real you know, large-budget film that launched with a geoengineering premise. And so that film starts out with us overcorrecting and turning Earth into kind of the version of Hoth from from Empire Strikes Back, right? A giant snow globe.
1: Kim Stanley Robinson, thoughts on geoengineering? Whether that's something that uh, you know is intellectually interesting, something that we ought to pursue on a research basis, as the as scientific academy recently said.
0: Well, it's being researched now, so it isn't a matter of should or not. We're researching it already. Uh, uh, immediately, everyone brings up the problem of what they call the moral hazard, that if you think that there might be some way out, some silver bullet solution to um, too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that they won't decarbonize fast enough. You'll think to yourself, well, we can go ahead and burn carbon because we'll, we have this silver bullet at the end of the game. So the moral hazard has to be taken into account, but I think everybody is right from the get-go. And some geoengineering methods that have been proposed are clearly dangerous, like um, seeding the oceans, because the oceans are already in trouble because of acidification and overfishing. And to put another factor in there, you could risk um, uh, destroying the food chain in the oceans um, by a byproduct, and then since one-third of our food comes out of the oceans, humanity would be in terrible trouble. Should not mess with the oceans. Now, this atmospheric stuff is a little more interesting because although Snowpiercer didn't want to go there, with, and I can see why for the sake of their story, the sulfur dioxide that you put up in the atmosphere is going to come down to Earth. It's just like what a volcano does. So after the most recent big volcanic explosion, temperatures were three or four degrees lower for uh, two or three years, and then the uh, sulfur dioxide settled out. So in other words, we could uh, run experiments... And if they were doing bad things, and then three or four years later, we'd be back to where we were anyway. And so I think people will be discussing this more and more because it's relatively inexpensive and relatively uh, technically achievable. I still, even the researchers don't think it's a good idea. It doesn't solve ocean acidification. It doesn't push the main problems, which aren't even about climate control, but are about environmental destruction more generally. So we talk about climate change because, in a way, it's comforting. Because if it were only climate change, you can imagine you go over to the thermostat on the wall there, and you shift it down, and you change the climate, and you can get rid of a problem. But if it's a complete biosphere destruction, if it's a mass extinction event that we are causing by all of our habits put together, then it's much scarier than a thermostat on the wall. And so I think one of the reasons that we talk about climate change so much is that it's a metonymy or mm-hmm. a cynic for the larger environmental mm. problem, and it's the one that seems most amenable to a silver bullet fix. What we really need to do is talk about the entire environmental crash that we're causing, and climate change is just one part of that problem.
1: And a lot it's a very dark story do people really want to read about all that doom and gloom <laughs> stuff how do you write about it in a way that's not a real downer I mean you want to sell books after all well
0: there's dystopia and there's utopia science fiction splits very neatly it does both and it's uh, obvious because it comes right out of our lives and our own thinking everybody's a science fiction writer everybody plans science fiction out of their own lives and utopia is your hopes If I do these things and things go right, I'll get to a good state, and dystopia are your fears. If I keep doing these bad things and bad things result, I'll get to this bad state. So both utopias and dystopias are very, very useful, and they're actually pretty popular. People read dystopias and they think, well, at least it isn't that bad now, or they think, (laughs) well, no, this is kind of dramatic and interesting. At least they're not in a boring suburban life like mine. And uh, this is really a category error, because any step away from civilization actually It gets more boring and more dangerous as you think about uh, trying to get enough food and trying not to get mugged, you begin to realize that the things that we don't like about civilization would get worse if civilization went away rather than better. So there's a lot of complicated things going on with reading stories, but um, people do love to read science fiction stories because it's a natural impulse to think, what will the future bring?
1: This year, I believe, is the 40th anniversary of Ecotopia. What, What was that for people who are not so familiar with it?
0: Well, Ernest Kallenbach of Berkeley wrote uh, Egotopia uh, 40 years ago this year, and so they're bringing out an anniversary edition. Uh, it was a story of a rebellion of Northern California and Southern Oregon, so sort of the state of Jefferson, and there used to be bumper <laughs> stickers that said, Keep the U.S. out of Egotopia. Um, and there, things were just being done in an environmentally conscious way with the best technology of the uh, 1970s and it was a very inspirational book. It changed people's lives. It changed their thinking. I think what it was was the 60s generation was growing up and thinking, how do I live my ideals? How do I take care of my kids? So you get this ecotopian thinking. But then the 80s came, and Ecotopia didn't know about the 80s, didn't know about the Reagan-Thatcher counter-revolution and the, the in- incredible amount of uh, growth of globalization and late capitalism. So now Ecotopia looks a little bit um, quaint, but on the other hand, the ideas are still very strong,
1: and, and the book should have a nice 40th anniversary. So Ecotopia didn't know about the Wolf of Wall Street, okay. Right. Um. There's an author, George Marshall, who's written a book that's influenced my thinking and others, and it's called Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. And he wrote, uh, he's a British journalist, he wrote, uh, and the New York Times had a forum on climate fiction, he said that cli-fi will reinforce existing views rather than shift them. If you are a skeptic, you, you think that, well, yeah, this is all fiction, it's fantasy, it's, it's not made up. If you are climate conscious and accept climate science, he says that, that the overblown storylines of climate fiction may objectify the problem. So, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, do you think that climate fiction will change people's minds or perhaps harden them? Well, there 's a really
0: serious question about reader response. It's so hard to tell, and it's really hard to generalize because everybody takes these things differently. And there is confirmation bias, as we were discussing, that you tend to take in the information that reinforces your already existing philosophies, where it's just the way that we are. So you read a fiction that in which the climate has changed in the future, you might find it reassuring. You say, well, I'll be dead before that happens, so that's their problem, not my problem. On the other hand, you could take it as a warning. You could think, well, I want a decent life for my grandchildren, and I rate my grandchildren as lives as importantly as my own as a philosophical or moral position. So at that point, imagining what it would be like can be vivid. You spend time living in that world, because that's what fiction does. You are in a different world. It's telepathy. It's time travel. Reading fiction is a very powerful experience. So I believe that if it's done right, it can change one's view. You come back to reality, and you have a kind of double vision. You have your normal daily vision, and then you have your science fiction vision, the future uh, interposed on it or or, uh, behind it. So you get a kind of 3D in time and it helps you to make decisions about what do I do today to help the situation for my grandchildren. So the science fiction double vision, the temporal uh, uh, 3D, the 4D vision, is really a, a useful tool for figuring out what to do now. It's a philosophical tool.
1: And we'll get to those, some of those questions, what do we do now uh, later in this program. But Jason Marks, uh, your thought on whether climate fiction sort of reinforces existing views or if it can open minds.
3: I mean, I, I, would, I would be cautiously optimistic, I'm going to generalize here, I would be cautiously optimistic that it can change minds, because I think it's a little bit of, um, I guess what you could call asymmetrical warfare, right? Because, okay, all the kind of policy magazines, and then the journals, and the think tanks, and the daily newspapers, those all have these pretty obvious signifiers, kind of where is it coming from? So someone is going to say, oh, that's coming from the New York Times, that's, that's you know, sort of maybe left of center, it's going to be maybe some people's Stereotype. Oh, that's coming from Fox News. Okay, that's going to be rightist. Um, and and there's, they've got all got all these signifiers. Well, a big blockbuster motion picture film, it's just popcorn, right? It's like people might not have their guard up as much. That would be my hope, right? That it might be able to come in from a side door and maybe get people to think about things differently. I mean, we know that confirmation bias works at the, the multiplex too, right? American Sniper is bigger in the South and in Texas and in parts of the West than it is doing in in New York and California, right? People go to see the art or the entertainment that perhaps is already speaking stories to them that they want to hear. But I do have a hope that um, something like Stan's work or perhaps even a Barbara Kingsolver. Barbara Kingsolver's kind of again got her own signifiers, but maybe it could come in sort of at a forty five degree angle. It comes from your peripheral vision. You're not you don't have your intellectual guard up and who knows. It might it might not move a denier to being James Hansen, but it might take someone who's maybe a little bit skeptical, say, about the science of anthropogenic global warming and climate change. get them to maybe think about things a little differently.
1: Although I took my kids to see the Lorax, the film, and I think Fox News called out the Lorax because the, the, it was anti-business or something other. Kim Stanley Robinson, any thoughts on what Jason Mark just said?
0: Well, I would agree with what Jason said there. I, it's, um, one goes to a work of art a little bit more open, and then also the interaction is one of immersion. For a while there, you're living other people's lives, you're paying attention to it uh, with an empathy especially with books, you have to imagine it yourself. And what you're imagining is, well, what was it like to live in the year 1800 during the Napoleonic Wars, and what did it feel like for them? Not the facts, but the feelings. So it's a very emotional business. And once you get to the emotional level, you begin to process in a different way than you do when you're reading the news in a more cognitive sense. So there is at least that going on, that when you talk about how would it feel, or you you immerse yourself in a work of art, then, when you come out that art will be um, cross-checked against the, your own reality and against all the other works of art all the other books that you've read all the other movies that you've seen and people are very sophisticated at that and they even are pretty good at giving the political orientation of the work of art that you can unpack all that stuff you can decode it very quickly but it's also put into everything else that you've experienced And then it becomes one more datum. You've lived one more life. That's the magic of art. You've managed to pack in one more of your 10,000 lives by reading another book, by seeing another film.
1: Jason, Mark, this might be more effective, telling stories than uh, fact-based journalism of the kinds that you and I practice. Maybe you had a... We ought to get new jobs or something, tell some stories, write some right, books. I
3: should go to a fiction workshop. Right. Yeah, maybe I should go to a fiction workshop. Right? but yeah. Because
1: the idea of piling on more facts, there's so many facts, right? It, it, there's the confirmation bias that's been, that Stan mentioned. Piling on more facts, is that really going to change someone's mind versus immersing themselves in a world that they might have some empathy?
0: Well, uh, the postmodern literary critics would, would tell us that we're all doing the same thing. We're all yeah. telling stories, and they're just different genres. So from your platform, you're saying, well, these are facts, but immediately the orientation of the facts, the sequencing of them, the emphases that you have mean that you're telling another kind of a story that's summarized rather than dramatized. And summary has enormous power. Uh, Dramatized scenes are like a movie in your head. You have to read 500 pages to pass a couple of months. Summarization can quickly give you abstracts and make a story that crushes down a whole lot of different elements and so you can do it in a thousand words rather than um, 360,000 words so um, I would say that we're uh, basically doing the same thing and it's the same thing that all of us do we tell stories to each other we're addicted to stories, they're one of the main ways that we comprehend the world our religions are stories, whatever our psychologist tells us are stories, Um, philosophy is stories, and it's just a question of do you believe them or not, and you sort of believe them all conditionally, but you rate them against all the other ones that you've heard, and you come up with your own personal philosophy. So I would say there's not a whole lot of difference except for genre differences, and each genre has its own particular
3: power. I I would say on this note, though, that I think sometimes it can also, some art... uh, especially if the satire's too obvious, the allegory's too obvious, can push buttons. I think a good example would be um, Pixar's Wall-E, right? Which I loved Wall-E. I thought it was very good. I went, um, she's not listening, she's the guy. I went with my sister-in-law. Um, she was af- grossly offended by the film. She felt that the depiction of sort of ordinary Americans as basically fat, stupid, and lazy, if you've seen the film, right, <laughs> was, was aimed at her. She really came out of that film... Um, very turned off, and there was a there was a there was a subcurrent of, of criticism around Wall E. Um, part of which did come. I mean, I saw like a very harsh review on National Review Online, but you know there was a subcurrent mm-hmm. saying, "Wow, and it's a cartoon, right? That it, it had so little subtlety that um, that might you know people's guard is going to come back up."
1: Perhaps. Uh, We're talking about climate fiction and Climate One. Our guests are Jason Mark, editor of Earth Island Journal, and Kim Stanley Robinson, the author. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, While we're critiquing things, Kim Stanley Robinson, I'd like to get your view on a book that was quite influential, involved actually a talk at the Commonwealth Club, and that was Michael Crichton's State of Fear, Hmm. which really attacked environmentalists and uh, basically said climate change is bunk. What did you think of that book?
0: Well, I thought that was a dreadful novel, um, and this is the thing. As a work of art, you couldn't believe a single sentence of it. Uh, scenes would happen that when you rated them against your reality principle, like could this happen, um, you would have to flunk it on an, an every page. The, the scenes it was presenting were unbelievable just on the strict sense of do people do this in the real world that I know, and no, they don't. So it was a very political attack, and maybe it's like the opposite of Wally, although you know, this is probably my own confirmation bias. I thought Wally was a masterpiece. At I thought Wally was great.
3: Yeah. I uh, loved
0: it. Although I saw it in a, in a small town where there was not applause at the end, and I think it was similar to your sister-in-law's reaction. People uh, were feeling a bit offended by that view of ordinary Americans. Um, but you know, Jonathan Swift was a very angry guy, too, and that's how satire works. You you uh, exaggerate things to the point of um, uh, of um, grotesque like the triplets of Belleville, there's an animated view of ordinary Americans that's even worse. Um, And um, you have to be able to take it and and do the translation. But people are very sophisticated in their consumption of art because everybody watches so much, everybody reads so much. So people, I think, are capable of making these judgments and translations. How do you talk to a climate skeptic, if you come across one? I say to him, when you're sick, do you go to the doctor? That's what I say. Because a doctor is a scientist, and medicine is science. It was kind of the first science. And everybody knows that medicine cannot always cure you, and uh, sometimes it's confused, and so it's a really good lesson in science. Science is not just facts, nor is science settled in stone, nor is it some godlike power to comprehend the world. It's just science. It's an attempt to understand things by reproducibility and by all the other parts of the scientific method. And when you're sick and when you're scared for your life, you run to a scientist. And I if I get climate skeptics that I'm irritated enough with, I will really press them on this point. Because they can't they'll have to admit that a doctor will walk up to them and say, Look, you don't have any symptoms yet, but you've got a cancer. I've got to poison you within an inch of your life and it will kill the cancer before it kills you. And the climate skeptic will say, Yeah, poison me. You know, I I take your word for it, and I don't want to die. So then the scientist comes up, what if it's the same doctor? says, look, the planet's sick. Your grandchildren are going to be living miserable lives if we don't do these relatively minor fixes that are actually quite economical and a lot of fun. They re-engage with the world. They're kind of a project. It's pretty cool. What's the problem with it? And so this is the way that I would try to squeeze the issue that everybody believes in science, even the so-called anti-science skeptics.
1: There's a, couple, a scene in one of your novels where there's some scientists uh, working at the National Science Foundation and they're wrestling. Congress is not doing anything li- like today, and they wrestle with something was whether they should go outside the parameters of uh, their scientific discipline and become advocates and become activists. Uh, and I think some scientists today wrestle with that boundary. Mm-hmm. Jim Hansen has clearly crossed that line, become an activist, and some people that think it has discredited him. But let's get Kim Stanley Robinson on that, and then Jason Mark.
0: Well, I think it's a dangerous thing, because as a scientist, you want to actually be speaking with the authority of the scientific method and talk about what science can really uh, assert which is always probabilistic. So once you do a James Hansen, although I admire him greatly and I think he's done the right thing for himself, it's kind of a retirement move. And now he's James Hansen. He's not NASA. And what you would want is something like what came out today from the National Research Council, I think it was, where it wasn't any individual that said this. It was the National Research Council putting out a report that has been peer-reviewed, that was written by a dozen people, based on the research of 10,000 people. And it says, this is the best that we can tell you right now about the situation. And what I would like to see is all scientists go to their professional associations and have them uh, uh, agree to put out... Uh, statements about climate change and what we can do about it that are authorized by the entire scientific body, the American Chemical Society, the AAAS, the National Association of Sciences, and, in fact, like 135 scientific organizations worldwide have all spoken on this already. But the more they do it at, speaking as um, the scientific community rather than as an individual like Hansen, the more power I think it has
1: to shape public policy. Jason Mark, is that right? to institutions... Um can people empathize with it with an institution versus a a human like James James
3: I mean, I would. I guess I'd mostly agree with Stan. I mean, I I think James Hansen has done an incredible thing. He's been an incredible voice and, and he's shown real, especially in the past couple of years, a, a form of moral leadership. But in general, I do think folks, especially in the in the hard sciences, are are better served probably sticking to their findings and then finding translators or interpreters i.e journalists or novelists or other folks who are going to go out and then um, get their findings out to the the broader public you know the triple has is actually meeting like this week i think in san jose um, their annual convention and and most of the folks there i think it's pretty safe to say um, they're not even personally that comfortable in that role right they would much rather stick to their findings the problem is right is that the academy um, values, does not, does not put a lot of premium on hard, fast, strong conclusions. That's setting yourself up to have the next researcher come along and poke a lot of holes in your theory. You always sort to hedge things a little bit. You say, this is what we found, but you know we're not entirely certain. You're never entirely certain. That's kind of, the I think, the inbuilt culture of a, a lot of sciences. And so that doesn't work very well on drive-time radio. It doesn't work very well on the nightly news, and it certainly doesn't work that well on Twitter. So um, I think you know. I, I, I would think of a guy like Michael Mann, right? Who his you know is really stuck to his research. He has been dragged against his will, right? Because of the kind of hockey stick. Um, and, the, and the email gate—I don't know if, this, if folks followed this, but anyway—he's
1: um, been attacked by politicians and others, and drawn it into a political fight in right. a
3: way that he's really not wanted to be. And I think he's kind of tried to try to just stick to his findings and, and know that that's kind of where his authority comes from. He's had to get down into the hurly burly in, in some ways, but um, you know, he's really tried to say this is what I've this is what my research has found.
0: I've had this impression that the scientific community has been shocked. That around 2002, they raised their hand. They said, folks, world, the the biosphere is burning down. Something needs to be done. And they were ignored. And capitalism just rolled on, saying, we need profits. We need shareholder value. We'll strip mine the world. What happens 100 years from now is somebody else's business, but I have a fiduciary responsibility to do everything I can to maximize profit. And the scientific community said, but wait, you know, the... Um, the biosphere actually is our physical infrastructure. You know, we are actually implicated with it. We live off of it. We can't do without it. You can't monetize it. If you destroy it, you can't pay to replace it later. These are all fantasies. And so we actually need to deal now. And now, I think in the last five years or so, you've seen more and more scientists and more and more scientific organizations trying to make something more vigorous than raising their hand at the back of the room and saying, we've got a problem. It's an ongoing situation, and And, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And
3: And not limited to climate, right? It could be vaccinations. It could be evolution. It could be a lot of different things in which there's a a pretty strong undercurrent. uh, You know, the Scopes Monkey Trial was, what, more than a century ago or something? But we're still still replaying it. So, I mean, there's still a pretty strong undercurrent in culture. And, in fact, what – this is maybe going a little far afield, Greg, but, I mean – There's a number of people in this country whose confirmation bias when it comes to climate change that reaffirms their belief that we may be living in the end times, right? It's a not insignificant, and I I don't remember the polling number exactly at the top of my head. but The
1: rapture is coming. The
3: rapture is coming. I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. like 20 30% of Americans think that climate change could be a symbol of that.
1: That's uh, right. That's one piece of the uh, the American population. Uh, We're talking with Kim Stanley Robinson and Jason Mark at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. What do you do in your own life to try to be part of the solution? Jason Mark, what do you do to walk the walk in your own life?
3: Um, I, you know, I, I try to ride my bike and use mass transit as much as possible and keep the, the car, we do have a car, but um, parked on the sidewalk there uh, I got a parking ticket the other day in fact because I forgot to move it because I hadn't moved it in a little while um, and I think most importantly try to eat lower on the food chain I, I, you know, I do eat meat but I've sworn off beef, I don't think um, knowing what I know about um, beef, cattle's—you uh, know—environmental footprint, especially their climate footprint. It's much higher than, than pigs or uh, or chickens. And so, um, I've sworn off—I've sworn off beef and try to stay on my bike as much as possible.
1: Kim Stanley Robinson?
0: Yeah, I agree with Jason on those are things that one can do. We're in a Mediterranean climate here, and it's uh, easy to um, uh, reduce your carbon burn without being grossly inconvenienced. It's not so easy in other parts of the country, but things can be done. Um, I also keep a garden, and so that means composting, and so it's a kind of nice recycling of our uh, copious wastes. And actually, if you keep a vegetable garden, it will quickly scare you Uh, because uh, (laughs) things go wrong that you don't understand, and agriculture is nowhere near as much of a controlled thing. It's not industrial even if we try to treat it industrially. So you keep a garden, and it makes you respectful, and it gives you a little uh, stab of fear, and it also grows you some good food. That's another advantage of our climate, uh, year-round food production. And so I I enjoy that. And, And I try to spend a lot of time outdoors. I think actually in a climate like this, you can Uh, you can work outdoors, you can recreate outdoors, you can eat
1: outdoors. It's uh, seldom that you get driven indoors. Speaking speaking of recycling, uh, are your books recycled, um, printed on recycled paper? (laughs) All too often.
0: (laughs) 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 Pulping is common in paperbacks.
3: (laughs) I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I think, you know, uh, Greg, I founded, or co-founded 10 years ago, Alamany Farm in San Francisco. It's the largest urban farm in San Francisco. And I strongly believe that um, just a smidgen of being your own food producer is probably the number one thing to, uh, not the number one thing, but among the top things to kind of build an ecological awareness because you have to very quickly become a hydrologist and a meteorologist and, you know, a bug scientist and a, and a little bit of a plant scientist. And you, I think you become more physically aware of of our surroundings and you, and you realize that we are in a dance with wild nature. And I think that's why you see so much cultural Sort of force um, behind the kind of Michael Pollan, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, sort of trend around around sustainable food because it is this. It just you just have like a pot of herbs and and one tomato plant. It's gonna it's gonna blow your mind.
0: But in this context, I think it's good to maybe bring up GMO foods because here's a huge discrepancy between the scientific community and the general public, and I think there's a category error going on. Um, Genetically modified foods, um, we've been genetically modifying plants ever since humans were humans in terms of hybridization. So if you clip them with little uh, microscopic scissors rather than hybridizing them, the act is not hugely different. And I think what people are objecting to against GMO foods is not that the foods have been manipulated, the plants have been manipulated, but that the seeds and the genes are then owned by a company, So what you're objecting to is not science, but capitalism. And this happens a lot. A lot of anti-science, especially from the left in America, is an objection to ownership of the public good. And so it's an objection to capitalism, not an objection to science. And if you de-strand those two, you begin to see this big cosmic battle, at least I do, in which uh, science is a force for trying to understand the world and make us more comfortable and in better balance with nature. And capitalism is strip mining for private profit of the 1% as it's practiced now. And it's basically been its historical uh, role all along. I mean, it's been necessary, it's been good, and yet it was never designed. It just came into being, and now it's destroying the earth. We have to change it. So GMO, the the food of the future is going to be a combination of organic gardening and genetically modified organisms. And there's a good book called Tomorrow's Table about this. And it, and it transcends the current political uh, differences about what to like or not like so that organic people and genetic engineers are going to be working together to make sustainable food. In the current context, that sounds confused. In the future, it's just gonna be doing what's necessary to feed the seven billion. So people have to open up their minds and think, how can we bridge to a future that's truly uh, in balance and sustainable? We have to do some weird things along the way, including opening up our ideas to the possibilities that peculiar combinations are going to happen in the near future.
1: And on reforming or or modernizing uh, or sort of changing capitalism, there's some people, there's people establishing B corporations. A lot of people are trying to have make large corporations be more sustainable? I was with a group of people yesterday who said, we understand the models are broken. Uh, we don't know how to replace them. Uh, how, Kim Stanley Robinson, how would you reform or uh, fix capitalism? You've mentioned a couple times that it's the problem.
0: Well, it is a very hard thing to discuss in detail because we have to make it up. It's a work of science fiction. But there are some guides. <laughs> what if uh, everything was uh, impor- the necessities of life for human beings were all regarded as public utility districts? So this gets back to social democracy and even to socialism. The idea that food, water, shelter, clothing are all public goods and uh, should be run of the people, by the people, and for the people. Then, capitalism as we practice it now would be in economic terms what they call push to the margin, be a marginal activity. So the toys, the games, the iPhones, they could still run the way that they run now, but the things that people need to live, like health care, are not profit motive driven, but are just simply part of the public good that we do for each other. So this sounds uh, radical, but uh, since 2008, it doesn't sound anywhere near as radical as it used to, because in 2008, we saw that the so-called free market system can crash, and that nobody understands it anymore, and that it is also destroying the earth. It persistently undervalues the natural world, and human labor. So these are the things where you can cut costs by not paying for them when you make your goods. So humans get immiserated and the natural landscape gets thrashed. So uh, paying for those would be a matter of reorganizing our priorities and it would be a big job, but it would also just be changing the laws. And we change the laws all the time. So it isn't that radical or crazy. I'm not really calling for revolution. I'm calling just for a political program that changes the laws to make things more sustainable and more just.
1: And some of that's already happening. The ecosystem services is, is an area where companies are starting to realize that it's worth uh, in their self-interest to pay to protect a, a watershed upstream so that the water that comes into their factory uh, is clean and that their nature provides all sorts of services that are of benefit to, to companies. And there's even markets that are starting to come up and, 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 and uh, develop around these areas where they can make money and people can trade and that sort of thing. So right. there is, it right. actually is happening in some respects. Yeah,
0: paying the true cost is one way to- to think of it. And then uh, that would mean a carbon tax, but it isn't really a tax. It's paying the true cost. So paying the true cost of carbon would just be putting a bigger price on it and putting the real price on it, the price of its wastes. And uh, another great idea comes out of this recent book by Thomas Piketty, uh, Capitalism in the 21st Century. If you have progressive taxes, that's great. We should have progressive taxes. But if the taxes were not just on income, but on capital assets, if there was a progressive tax on capital assets, this is the scary idea out of Piketty's book that scared Wall Street, that scared the economists, that scared capitalism in general and the right wing. If there was a progressive tax on capital assets, Wealth would tend to flow back towards to everybody that made it, and it would not tend to accumulate in a pyramid at a top in the 1%. You simply, the more capital assets somebody has, the more they get taxed, and eventually they get uh, equalized. Anybody making more than $100,000 a year is actually going into unhappy land rather than happy land, according to uh, scientific studies. So nobody needs to complain about this. Um, It's a perfect plan. It's something we can all do. (laughs) It's a political program, right? And it's, it's now within the window of acceptable discourse. If I said this 10 years ago, you'd say, oh, my God, these hippie science fiction writers, you know, they're just so crazy. And it's true. But now it's within the window of acceptable discourse. I can say it in this library. I can say it on TV. Uh, Piketty can say it and become a bestseller and speak all around the country about it. Um, that's the big uh, shift since 2008, And Piketty's just one part of it, but he's done an astonishing thing to mean that we can discuss these issues without sounding crazy, but actually sound rational.
1: Maybe we'll find out in our question-and-answer period here in Lafayette how many of our members of the audience I'm looking at here, how many people over $100,000 or people want to see some of their wealth de- redistributed. Um, but uh, we'll get to that point in, in the audience question period coming up soon. We're, we're here talking at Climate One with the author Kim Stanley Robinson and Jason Mark. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs in the iTunes store. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson that our language has been changing around the severe weather that's been happening recently uh, derecho polar vortex atmospheric rivers I never heard of these terms a few years ago and yeah. now they're part of our everyday knowledge so how do you see the language changing as sort of severe weather uh, becomes part of our daily life? Thanks for that, Greg, because I've
0: been noticing that myself, and I think it's fascinating. This atmospheric river that in California has become the na- latest word. I, I think we used to call it Pineapple Express. Oh, Express um, and it's a kind of an El Nino effect, but we're seeing them now. Uh, what I think used to be called a, a storm is now called a, an <laughs> Rain. It used to be called rain. <laughs> rain. So I like it. I like it because it, it, it's, it, uh, it's, a, it, it's, it's scientific. Science is always making up new words, ma- mostly out of Greek and Latin, in order to be a little more precise about the physical world. So an atmospheric river is a metaphor, right? But it's a very powerful and clear metaphor as to what's going on across the Pacific. And we're going to get more of those. And polar vortex is one that didn't exist when I wrote 40 Signs of Rain, and, and now I, I see it come into being. So that'll keep happening, I think. Jason Mark.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, those are sort of like creations of the producers at CNN in some ways, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they just keep repeating them over and over again until it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I think what's interesting in the weather coverage, and we have seen some extreme weather events, right? It's especially, you know, the tornadoes in the Midwest, some incredible um, uh, rain events in in parts of the country, but it seems like, especially if you these you watch cable news or you follow the the Twitterati on Twitter, so much churn about oh my god this blizzard's going to hit New York and then it's kind of like a nothing sandwich. Um, I, I don't know what's going on there, but you know there does seem to be, I don't know, I mean some sort of new heightened attention around weather, and perhaps it is because there have been some extremes that have been truly, I think, frightening to people. The tornadoes being the most obvious one. Tornadoes have been out of season. Tornadoes have been especially large. Something there is, it sensitizes me. It's because we've got the Weather Channel 24 hours a day.
1: They're like, yeah, the, the climate change is going to be good for the Weather Channel. You used a phrase in your New York Times article of storm porn, right? It's become right. the new sort of, you know, disaster uh, to show on cable TV. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, My name is Raymond Welch. I'm the author of a cli-fi book called A Change in the Weather, and uh, what you were just talking about in terms of the atmospheric rivers is actually the premise of the book. It's a story of a family who gets caught up in an America turned upside down because the jet stream changes so radically that the seasonal highs and lows shift around the globe, and agriculture fails. Economic collapse, right-wing takeover. I I wonder if you agree with me that the imminence of climate change is much closer than people think. My book occurs in, in 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, Kim Stanley Robinson, your book was 2013. It might be much closer. It's a smaller number. <laughs> oh 12 yes. But, um,
0: no, what I would agree with is this. The first time we have a food crisis, it will change everything because there will be panics and there will be hoarding. And as soon as there's hoarding, there's a lack of social trust and the whole supply chain gets, gets messed up and, and it's very hard to reestablish. Once people get into a hoarding mentality, it hardly ever goes away. People hold on to that their whole lives. So, and food, we only have six months worth of stored food for the population of the world right now. So one food crisis and uh, everybody will be that much more nervous about everything.
3: I, I, what I think is interesting, yes, I mean we could hit a sudden tipping point that would ruin some harvest and that would get people's attention real quick. I think what's interesting is the way in which the large agribusiness companies, I'm mostly thinking here of, of Monsanto and, and Archer Daniels Midland, um, have paid a lot, very close attention to climate change, have made a lot of investments in startup companies that are doing weather forecasting. And the head of ADM says, I'm not going to get into a, what he thinks is an academic debate about whether or not climate change is happening. And they're seeing it, and their clients and or... Um, their vendors, right, that are either, you know, selling or growing these bulk commodities are seeing it as well. Last year in this country, we had one of the biggest soybean harvests in history, right? So, I mean, but again, you could have a tipping point and you could have a couple of big failed harvests in the major commodities that, yes, I think would get people's attention very, very quickly.
1: Many people forget, but we had rationing of rice at Costco just, what, five or six years ago when there was big Australian droughts hit, hit the rice uh, market globally, and there was rationing at Costco. People forget. We're talking about climate fiction at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and our guests are Kim Stanley Robinson, the science fiction author, and Jason Mark, editor of the Earth Island Journal. Let's go to our next audience question.
4: Hi, um, my name is Jessica Lovering, and I work in an environmental think tank, but I study nuclear power to mitigate climate change. And the reason I mention that is that I also run a very large dystopian book club in San Francisco. And Mm. we've noted that um, 50 years ago, a lot of the post-apocalyptic fiction was very nuclear war focused. and it's moved over time, you know, we went through plagues. But now it's very, there's a lot of dystopian fiction about climate change. And it seems like for my generation, that's the big existential threat that people are worried about. When no one's really thinking about nuclear war anymore um, as a realistic threat. So my question is, do you think, you kind of mentioned GMOs that, you know, if you take out the, that capitalism aspect, we might need to reconsider GMOs, to solve the food crisis or to help with climate change adaptation. And the same thing is sort of going on with nuclear power. You know, James Hansen is a big nuclear power supporter because he's so worried about climate change. So my first question is, do you think that climate change really is the main existential threat that we're worried about now? And do you think that's going to make people sort of change how they feel about other risks like GMOs or nuclear power or, I don't know, other things?
1: Thank you.
3: Oh, I mean, I guess Casey I'd agree Mark. with what you said earlier, that, 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 that climate change gets so much attention. I mean, yes, it is an existential threat because it's in some ways easier to wrap our minds around than, in fact, the collapse of the entire biosphere because of the sixth mass extinction, because of what's happening, especially with the oceans. Our magazine's got an upcoming um, interview with uh, Dr. Sylvia Earle. You listen to Sylvia Earle for five minutes and you're just, like, starting to get really bummed out. I mean, I think, actually, yes, people are going to start rethinking... Um, some of these technologies and, and how they feel about them. But in a way, climate change is the most obvious symptom of larger problems that are happening system-wide on multiple Earth systems. Um, you know, there's, there's some people who've got this kind of model of tipping points. Well, how many biological biosystems tipping points have we crossed? They say four of nine. Some of these are things you don't even think about. How much nitrogen is out in the biosphere? Are we mm-hmm. over? You know, we've created all this synthetic nitrogen um, in the form of fertilizers and then it all washes out into the biosphere that's pretty academic compared to thinking about I drive in my car and I'm spewing an effluent that goes somewhere um, so to answer your question I think um, it's, it's, it's all of these kind of systems that are crunching at once and that's what's going to get people to start reconsidering some of their antipathy or, or opposition to various technologies
1: and on the getting bummed out thing, I want to ask both of you, uh, this gets pretty dark, uh, if you, knowing as much as you know about the climate reality and the, and the biosphere. How do you avoid, what gives you hope? How do you avoid getting depressed? Do you drink alone? Did tell us, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> drink with others. <laughs> <laughs> Who are also depressed, yeah. Share the misery, yes, okay. No, life is robust. It's only extinctions that are irreversible uh, and uh, and ocean acidification. So um, there's many, many reasons for hope. It's a natural human activity. Um, But I want to say about the nuclear question, because it's so interesting, I've never read a really detailed analysis of how much carbon saving is there really from nuclear. But I would also agree with Hanson in this. It would be better than burning coal, and you can also think of it as a bridge technology. One more generation of nuclear run by the U.S. Navy that has been doing nuclear since 1945 without... I mean, occasionally they'll lose a bomb, but they've never had a nuclear accident. And um, um, So in other words, if it's run for the public, by the public, and not for profit nuclear can probably be safe and be a bridge technology to even clean their technologies. One more generation of nuclear is not going to break the bank on destroying the world, and yet it might save us a crucial amount of carbon. What I'd like to see is an analysis of that, and Amory Lovin says that we're already so close to really excellent clean energy that we don't need nuclear. We can just go straight to the forms of clean energy. But energy is important, and we waste it like crazy. Twelve thousand watts a year for Americans, uh, three hundred for people in Bangladesh. In the developing world, energy means refrigeration, means health. So we need energy bad, and we can't just say let's not have energy. So uh, nuclear, maybe it's a bridge, maybe it's unnecessary.
1: I, I have never read a really good analysis. A lefty who loves the U.S. Navy. Okay, let's go to the next. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's go to our next audience question.
2: I'm Peter Teague from San Francisco. Um, I spent the last six months reading almost nothing but Kim Stanley Robinson. So, oh my God! Thank you for a fabulous. <laughs> you six haven't exploded. Of... <laughs> <laughs> I uh, it, it it really has been an incredible pleasure reading you, um, and I have I've loved your incredible breadth of knowledge. I, it's just it's mind boggling to me how many subjects you cover uh, seriously and in very interesting ways. And there's also, I think there's a bigness in your writing, there's a generosity in your writing. Um, your, your appreciation for different perspectives, um, I think for me has made me think about issues, uh, as I read about Mars in the future, I'm thinking about issues here in more creative ways and I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually read I think all of your work except for the climate work mm-hmm. and I've avoided it frankly because I feared losing that wonderful artist and gaining an advocate and mm-hmm. reading an advocate. And, and I'm sorry, my question is, how do you write about climate without becoming an advocate who writes a polemic?
0: Well, my solution was to try to do it as black comedy. And thank you for your comments, by the way. I appreciate that very much. And my climate trilogy, 40 Signs of, of Rain, 50 Degrees Below, 60 Days and Counting, You've done well to dodge those. They're, it's a mess uh, of a novel um, because I was trying to do many things, but I thought maybe a black comedy about global warming would be a good idea. I'm not so sure. Um, but I have uh, squeezed those books down to a single volume that has improved them markedly, I think. Embarrassing, but true. And so this fall, there'll be a book called Green Earth that will be that climate trilogy squished down by about 15%, and I think it's markedly better. So you might try it out then. What I did there was what I usually do is try to put a bunch of characters with different views into the situation, see what they say. So there's a lot of Buddhists in that book uh, trying to influence the National Science Foundation as being their quickest way to changing the world. And so by making it a black
1: comedy, I thought maybe I could deal with it without getting overwhelmed. You're also publishing that book, Kim Stanley Robinson, a few months before the Paris Climate Summit, where... Potentially, there might be a global deal on climate. That's conscious timing on your part. What do you hope will happen in Paris? I hope for a grand deal. Um,
0: Everybody is saying this is an important one, and they say that every time. But somehow, maybe the groundwork is set. uh, China seems on board. Um, I don't know. What do you think?
3: I'm uh, very cautiously optimistic. I do think the China-U.S. bilateral opened up some breathing space in the room. I, people, people who were like really uh, – a lot of people were talking about that like two, three years ago. I first heard that in, I think, 2012, that this China bilateral was going to come, that that was going to hopefully be a little bit of a logjam. Interestingly, now it's the, it's the Indian government that's really um, now kind of holding firm and – and is is going to be i think a bigger a bigger problem and obviously that's a billion people who are in general energy poor and that's got to get figured out um i don't know it's that's one of those hopeful deals you got to keep we got to keep being hopeful and hope that there is a binding or close to binding i don't know i mean if it's not binding, it can't just be commitments there's got to be some some sort of thing that we need a science fiction writer to imagine what goes in between just paper commitments and binding agreements that can that can stick
0: yeah, and, but
1: having us and china rowing in the same direction is a big change from the that's, that's a big, a big it's that a game helps. changer
0: just to have a meeting that's a uh, high profile is a good thing no matter what happens and as to these coal countries india australia canada it, it, the coal is like uh, bombs tied around to their chest and they walk into a meeting and they say look you do what i want or else i'm blowing up my coal So it's a kind of a uh, climate terrorism uh, to get their political ends. So you have to uh, pay them off because they do need the energy. So then it becomes a political act. Well, okay, we'll trade you. Keep your coal in the ground. We need to keep 2,000 gigatons of fossil fuels in the ground or else we've cooked the planet. And Hansen is very good on this. Go ahead and burn all the oil on Earth, but don't burn the coal because there's way more coal, and that will cook
1: us. And nuclear, that's where we come back to nuclear, where the U.S. can provide nuclear to, to India, keep the coal in the ground. There might be a grand bargain there. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome.
0: Yeah, I'm James Cannell with Virtually Green. And uh, years ago, I worked with a little company called Maxis. They developed something called SimCity, which arguably, I would say, had was largely responsible for at least a whole section of time wasters who ended up knowing a tremendous amount about system and, and having to to solve things by looking at things a, as an integrated system. You could not win that game by just throwing police stations at something or just throwing employment. Everything connected. And I think it, it, it really caused a paradigm shift and even a lot of skills in youth and other people who spent an ungodly amount of time playing it. These days, you have incredibly powerful multi... You know, player games online. Um, Zynga released Farmville, for example. Thirty seven million people in three months were playing it. And they were paying for the privilege. And I would argue that there is that, that that context
1: for storytelling, for your stories, for example, is is untapped. So climate positive utopian Uh,
0: I I I agree with you. Someone needs to do that. It it can't be me because there's a fundamental, there's almost an existential difference between narratology and ludology. The difference between stories and games is profound. And I actually get a kind of nausea when I contemplate the choices in games. And my kids can do it, I can't do it. I I need the story to be the story. And so I read novels compulsively, and I write them where the story is the story. And when I was a bookseller selling Choose Your Own Adventure in the 70s, I used to hate those books with a passion because (laughs) you can't choose your own adventure. The story chooses it for you. So I agree Uh. that there is a a platform there for uh, gamers and people who understand ludology to get it right and to teach people things. It's a wonderful uh, genre, but it's not my genre.
1: There's an organization called Cool the Earth. It teaches, uh, it goes into schools around the country, K through 8. They partnered with the founders of Guitar Hero, a very successful uh, video game, and did a climate game for kids to try to, I haven't played it, but people are kind of going down that path. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Kim Stanley Robinson, author of 2312, and Jason Mark, author, editor of the Earth Island Journal. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to this and other Climate One podcasts in the iTunes store. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club in Lafayette and those listening online. Thank you all. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chan. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editors Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.